Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, I confess, as I was singing uh, that song this morning, the, the words, you're all we want, you're all that I want. Uh, man, I, <laughs> I want that uh, to be true in my heart and in my life. Uh, we, as your people, uh, want that uh, to be true. It is so easy in life to settle for lesser things. And so I pray this morning that you would give us an affection uh, for you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us a desire to know you and to love you and to follow you. Uh, God, I'm so grateful for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather as your people, uh, to hear from you, to hear your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word this morning. Uh, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. You may have a seat. Uh, our passage this morning is from the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 48 through the end of the chapter. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can pull it out and follow along, or you can uh, follow along on the screen as well. Uh, if you use the Version app, you can also pull that out, go under Events, uh, look for Christ Point Church, and uh, the passage will be there as well. Uh, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48, reads, uh, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Uh, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known uh, him. I know him. If I were to say that I uh, do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. At this time, I would like to dismiss our kids, uh, kindergarten through fifth grade. Uh, parents, you can pick them up at the end of the service uh, in the chapel. And at this time, I would like to invite uh, Billy, one of the elders here at Christ Point, to come and bring us the word. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Um, on Friday, um, we dropped off our youngest son, our second son, for, to college. <clears throat> our daughter Ava is a senior at NC State. My son Gavin is at Charlotte now. So for the, for the time being, as of today, uh, we are officially empty nesters. And that's exciting. I've kind of been looking forward to that. But uh, 
on Friday morning, I knelt down uh, to pray, and I started crying like a baby. I mean, like the last time I cried, I think was during the movie Gladiator. So it's been a minute, okay? That's usually not how I handle emotion, or at least not, you know, predictably. So I just throw that out there that I'm kind of in a, I'm being vulnerable with you. Don't worry, they're recording this, so if anything interesting happens that you want to see again later, you'll be able to find it. Um, But uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to pray again. Um, Jesus, just as I confessed, I need you really bad. Uh, We all need you. We may not realize it in this moment, but we do. Uh, If you don't open our ears, none of what I say is going to matter. If you don't open our hearts, then just hearing it isn't going to change a thing. I pray that you'll open our ears and open our hearts and then give us courage to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am honored and humbled to um, be standing here today. I often say that I really don't understand why God does things the way he does. Using a broken person like me, to deliver the most important news that the world has ever known to other broken people who desperately need it, even as I desperately need it. But God knows best, and it's my my pleasure and joy to to bring this message today. Um, In this moment, when I stand here and I I bring a, a, a topic in front of everybody, I feel like the most blessed person on the planet. Um... Like, I've been chosen by the God of the universe to deliver an important message, right? And today's message is actually not only important, it's also exhilarating. Uh, It really is. The message for today is that we do not have to die. Okay? You heard that right. And I want you to think about it. You and I do not have to die. Over the years, I've become somewhat fascinated by death. Don't worry, it's not in some morbid, kind of doom and gloom sort of way, but from an eternal perspective kind of way, like how life begins, when it ends, and what that crossover point is like. God has no beginning and he has no end. We, our souls, also have no end, whether our ultimate destination is a good place or a not-so-good place. The more I understand the gospel the more I look forward to being in heaven. (laughs) When you get to my age, people start going, man, what I wouldn't give to be 18 again. I don't, I mean, nothing against 18-year-olds. I I love being 18, but I don't want to do over. Like, life is hard. And the more I learn about heaven, the more I think about being with Jesus and what that's like, the more I'm like, that sounds like a good deal. That's what I want. Now, there's no way I could ever prepare to deliver a message this serious and this significant without help. So the good news for you uh, is that I owe a huge thank you to my normal go-tos, John Piper, Matt Carter, and our own professor, James Metzger, who um, gave me a lot of insight and help as I prepare today. So during our brief time today, I want to do three things. One is I want to make an observation Two, I want to bring to you a staggering atomic bomb-like promise. 
And three, I'm going to reveal, I want to reveal the true identity of the Savior of the world. And then we'll wrap it all up by answering the question, or at least trying to answer the question, or starting to answer the question of what do we do with this. First, an observation. I want to make an observation about who Jesus is talking to. As James just read, our text today is in John chapter 8. And it's the continuation of Jesus' teaching, the people, all those that had gathered around him to hear what he had to say. And more directly, his blistering words to the Jewish religious leaders who we frequently refer to as the Pharisees. The reason this needs to be addressed is that because it's possible to connect that group, the Jewish religious leaders, with some of us today, the Christian religious leaders. It's easy for me when I read the Gospels, and maybe for you too, to kind of feel safe when we read about the Pharisees because I think, I'm not one of those guys. Like, Jesus would never talk to me like that. Really? The Pharisees were serious about their faith. Like, really serious. But ultimately, they were accused of trusting in their own righteousness. Their faith was not in God. It was in their own ability to figure out how to please God. Have I ever done this? I think that's a good question. Have you ever done this? Do we ever say, if I can figure out how to be a good enough husband, or a good enough wife, or a good enough parent, a good enough neighbor, if I can check enough boxes on the do-good list, maybe I can slide in and Jesus will be happy with me. The, debit, the credits outweigh the debits, or are you counting people whichever way that goes that's supposed to be good? We really just want to be special, but a lot of times we want to do it in our own strength. Realizing my tendency and the tendency of many Christians to at times try to be our own Savior moves this text today from some historical group to our own neighborhood. And as James covered last week, Jesus has just finished telling these religious leaders that contrary to what they arrogantly and foolishly think, their father is not God, but Satan himself. Like, this is getting serious, okay? In a nutshell, Jesus is shredding these religious leaders. Now, over the last few years, I found myself watching the series called The Chosen. I think I actually teared up during a couple of scenes for that. One reason I think that I've enjoyed it is they do a pretty good job of bringing to life what it might have been like for the disciples. I love learning about the disciples and imagining how I would respond. If Jesus dropped in out of nowhere and I'm fishing thinking that this is as good as it'll ever get. And Jesus comes in, changes everything. What ways would I be like them? What ways would I not be like them? I try to think about what it was like. I mean, they were so eager to please Jesus. He's their rabbi. He's their master. They see something different about him. But they're essentially clueless about everything else. And I picture them getting excited, or at least I would probably, when Jesus starts doing these miracles. His popularity is skyrocketing, which means their popularity is skyrocketing. When they stand in line at Starbucks, people look and go, they're starting to get known. And when I think about it, I figure it had to be like an amazing experience. But then, like in this scene in the text of chapter 8, things are starting to shift. Earlier, there was the synagogue talk when Jesus read the Isaiah prophecy and then said that that is fulfilled in front of them right then. That ruffled some feathers. 
Then he gave this eat my flesh talk during another synagogue conversation. And that freaked some people out. Then instead of chilling out and kind of laying low for a little bit, Jesus moves directly into the center of the drama and starts hitting the religious ruling class harder and harder. And he's not backing off. He's actually doing the opposite. He's shredding them. And he's doing it in public. Okay? If anyone in the history of the world cared about appearances, it's these Jewish religious leaders. Appearances were everything. You know anybody like that? The only thing that matters is what everybody on the outside thinks. Or at least what we think they think. God was not God to them. Because their appearance in front of others, that was their God. So I imagine being a disciple, again, eager but clueless, and I'm thinking about the longevity of this ministry here on earth. And I'm going, hey, you know, embarrassing the religious leaders in public is not good for business. That doesn't appear sustainable to me. So I can picture the disciples going from thinking how cool it is to perhaps wishing Jesus might dial it down a little bit. But again, he's slicing and dicing these people. He's been doing this for all of chapter 8, and he just said their father's the devil. So we pick up in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And just to be clear, using the term the Jews, Jesus is, or excuse me, John is referring to these religious leaders, the Pharisees. These are supposed to be the shepherds of the people of Israel to help them find God. They're supposed to be watching for the Messiah. They should actually be the ones pointing people to Jesus, but obviously they're not. And this is a horrible scene. Okay? The Jews are supposed to be family. These are the people that Jesus has come. Jesus is a Jew. He came as a Jew to save the Jews and to bring the kingdom to the Jews. He's come to present the Messiah to the Jews and fulfill all the promises to his family. But instead, they result to calling him a Samaritan and saying he has a demon. Listen to how John Piper describes the heaviness of this. This is a multi-layered slur. At one level, the the Samaritans are Jewish half-breeds who intermingled with the Gentiles, formed their own Bible, and decided to worship in another way than at Jerusalem. So, and so the Jews hated the Samaritans. They're calling him one of those half-breeds. Here's another layer. Several times in the Gospel of John, the issue is that Jesus was born of Mary and nobody quite knew who got her pregnant. So they could say, we don't know who your father is. For all we know, he was a Samaritan. Then to top it all off, and you have a demon. So a racial slur, a slur against his mom and his origin, and, the, and a slur against the power that he has claiming that he's demonic. This is pretty ugly and powerful stuff. Then verses 48, excuse me, 49 and 50, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Here Jesus responds by being direct, I do not have a demon. And he's also saying, I don't need to defend myself. I have a defender. My father is my defender, and he will vindicate me. I don't need to win an argument with you. My father will win it in the end, and he will be your judge. Now listen to this. This response alone, we could camp out for a while, and it's scary. Jesus is saying that his father, God, 
is glorifying him, Jesus. And these religious leaders are dishonoring Jesus. So they are setting themselves in direct opposition with God, and God will be their judge. This is a warning to them and to any one of us today. We want to meet God as our Father. Okay? When this life is over, we want to meet God as our Father. We do not want to meet God as our judge. That will not end well. Jesus' response here is a warning not to align ourselves with anyone who dishonors Jesus. So now we know that the focus of Jesus' talking is primarily the Jewish religious leaders. And now we come to my second point, which is this atomic bomb staggering promise. Let's read verse 51. Jesus says the following, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is staggering. This changes the game. The you here is everyone in the audience. That's interesting to note. Including the very religious leaders who hate him. He's still offering them life, even at this point. Now one thing in this life is certain, right? No matter who you are, you're going to die. Every one of us is going to die. Or are we? This verse says truly, truly, not falsely, falsely, or maybe, maybe. In preparing for this sermon, I came across a book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. It was written in 1973 and won a Pulitzer Prize. The thesis of Mr. Becker's book is that the fear of death haunts humans so much that it is the main driver of all of human activity. Whether we realize it or not or know it or not, our life's activity is designed around trying to avoid the fatality of death. To try to somehow overcome it, delay it, avoid it, forget about it, deny it, whatever it takes. Now, I don't know if Mr. Becker was a Christian. And from what I could tell, he had no answer for the slave-like obsession that we have with death. What's interesting is that the Bible addresses this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus... Likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the writer of Hebrews believes that humans are enslaved their entire lives by this fear of death, whether we know it or not. And you know, outside of the solution that this Hebrews passage gives through Jesus, we should be afraid of death. It's natural to fear death. Why? Because ultimately, fundamentally, death is separation. When someone dies, the spiritual part of the person, which is the soul, is separated from the physical part of the person, which is the body. I'm guessing that many, if not most of us, have been to a funeral or maybe a visitation before a funeral where we've seen someone's body lying in a casket. And while their body is there in its physical form... Who they are, their soul, is not there at that moment. So when we die, where does the soul go? That's the million-dollar question, right? We hope it goes somewhere. I mean, something inside of us says that this life is not all there is, right? We all know deep down that we'll live on somewhere, or at least that's what we're thinking. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us he has put eternity into man's heart. 
So this hunch that we have is actually God-given. But this does not mean that we're going to get it right. I've always been fascinated with these thoughts. Like God has no beginning and no end. Eternity will be forever. And when I think about these kind of things, it actually kind of starts to make my brain hurt. It makes me think about different people. Myself included, if I'm included in these people. It makes me think about people who believe they're doing God's work and God's will, but they're doing it in their own way. (coughs) They're doing it in their own effort. They don't need Jesus. I also think about people, and this is pretty common. Most of us believe in God in some form, right? So people believe in God, but they don't think it matters how you get to God. You go your way, I'll go my way. Again, they don't need Jesus. Ultimately, both of these kind of segments of people, a lot of people that believe in God, they live their life and they die and they are rejecting Jesus. So they ultimately meet God as their judge. Again, that's not good. There are no mulligans when we die, right? (laughs) We don't get the, oh, eight seconds, eight seconds. Go back, Jesus, I repent, forgive me, change me, save me. Now we're ready. We don't don't get that. There are no do-overs. And at that moment when we die, literally nothing matters except where you are. That's it. Whether anybody remembers your name on earth, completely irrelevant. If you're a Hall of Famer, if you have hair, nobody cares. You're not going to care. If physical death is the separation of the soul from the body, then spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And this is horror on steroids. Jesus talked a lot about spiritual life and death. John chapter 3, we've covered not too long ago. Jesus tells Nicodemus that every human must be born again to enter heaven. And then we get perhaps the most famous verse in all the scripture, John 3.16. Where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the promise Jesus makes in verse 51 of our text, he will never see death, goes beyond physical death to address the far more terrifying reality of spiritual death. And some of you know this already, but maybe not everybody that's listening today knows this. So I want to do my best to make it really clear. Our sin which is defined as anything and everything we do against God's law in word, thought, or deed, our sin separates us from the sinless and perfect God of the universe. He is holy. We are unholy. This separation is made permanent after physical death when God, the just judge, punishes sin with eternal separation from Him in hell forever. Understanding this reality makes the promise of Jesus in the verse we just read, John 3.16, very sweet. Jesus is our way out. We do not have to remain spiritually dead. We can be made alive through Jesus, which means that we can actually look forward to eternal life with God in heaven forever. John 11 verses 25 and 26 is a scene when Jesus is attending a funeral of his friend Lazarus. 
and he's talking to uh, uh, Martha, not Mary, Martha, and he expands on this promise. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here Jesus promises that the life he gives us cannot be extinguished or interrupted by physical death. And even when we die physically, we will not experience spiritual death. So for the Jesus follower, death is not a separation, but actually a homecoming. Death means being in the presence of Jesus immediately. So this raises the question, who is this promise for? It's important to understand that this is a conditional promise. It's not for everyone. Jesus says the promise of never seeing or tasting death is ours if we keep his word. So what does Jesus mean by the phrase, if you keep my word? What Jesus is saying here is that if we believe what he says, if we embrace what he says, if we love what he says, if we treasure what he says, if we honor what he says, if we hold on to what he says as our greatest value, if we abide in what he says, then we're not going to see death. This promise is not for the unbeliever. It's not for the person, whether they attend church or not, who maybe says they believe Jesus existed and said these things, and that maybe they're even true. But ultimately, they don't repent for their sin and submit their life to His will. Also, uh, this may ruffle a feather or two, I have my doubts that this promise is for the person who prayed a sinner's prayer a decade ago, or in 1995, and since then hasn't shown the slightest interest in the things that interest Jesus. I have my doubts. I have a good friend of mine who was my age. Uh, <clears throat> a few years ago, he had a cardiac arrest and died. He was raised in the church. I know he prayed a sinner's prayer. I probably was sitting beside him when he said it. Um, but he was really successful. He was sharp. God was... He had it all, man. And, and he had some things he wanted to do. And so Jesus was on the side. It was not his focus, unless it helped his business. <laughs> Sometimes there are beneficial, earthly beneficial reasons to attend church. So he checked all those boxes. I know in conversations with him that his ultimate goal, he would circle back. Jesus, not right now. I'm busy. I'll come back. I'll come back. But he didn't get a chance. He's gone. Now, I naturally go, is he in heaven? His family's talking like he is. They hope he is. I hope he is. But I don't know. The reason is because I know my own brokenness. <laughs> my brokenness keeps me falling to my knees. I sin regularly. And I need forgiveness. I need grace and I need mercy. It seems wise to me to be vigilant about my own heart and not to rest on a prayer I prayed yesterday or a decade ago or when I was a teenager. Here's another truly, truly verse that is equally, if not more impactful. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, 
I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So a Jesus follower, someone who abides in him, has already passed from death to life right now. This is good news. Eternal life, by definition, never stops, even for a second. So listen here, okay, if you've been sleeping, wake up. Let this sink in. We never lose our eternal life with Jesus. If we abide in him, he abides in us. There's not a five-minute pause or a five-second pause in a hospital bed or a hospice bed or anywhere else. Believers do not see or taste death. Our bodies die, but we do not. It just gets perfected in the snap of a finger. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55, says, when the, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's good news if you're paying attention. So again, we know Jesus is talking to these religious leaders who clearly hate him. And Jesus has just dropped an atomic bomb-like promise on everybody, including us today, by saying that those who follow him will never see death. And now we get to the clincher, Jesus' most direct claim about his true identity. So we pick back up in verse 52 with this response from the religious leaders. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? So we see the religious leaders doing what they do. But their question, which is clearly giving in a mocking sort of way, actually results in us getting these next verses, which are the greatest direct revelation in all of Scripture. So if they hadn't asked this question, we may not get this. So it's another example of God using the most evil of intentions for his glory and for our good. Verse 54 continues, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? This is amazing. Jesus says the patriarch of all patriarchs, Abraham, has seen Jesus and his salvation and rejoiced. At this point, I think the Pharisees' heads are literally about to explode. Okay? Y'all see the movie Beetlejuice like 30 years ago, that scene where their heads are spinning? That's what I picture. (laughs) then this mic drop moment from Jesus, verses 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And there it is. The statement that supersedes every statement ever made. Jesus' words here, 
before Abraham was, I am. Sounds a little weird, right? Maybe a lot weird. He could have easily said, before Abraham was, I was. It would have sounded a little smoother. He also would not have been accused of blasphemy because he would just be equating himself with an angel. So they could have brushed him off. But he said it like he did before Abraham was, I am, for a reason. And the religious leaders knew what he was saying. This goes back to Exodus when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So the response in this text, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am is the clearest declaration from the mouth of Jesus that he is, in fact, God. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. I am. And his response to their response puts his life in mortal, in mortal danger. They try to stone him, but Jesus was going to die by crucifixion. So their attempts to stone him don't work because that's not the plan. The plan will unfold in our, in our next chapters. So the question is now, what do we do with all this? The bottom line of our text today is one, the deity of Jesus, and two, the deathlessness of his followers, which brings up an honest question. What do we do? I think I've shared this before, that this is a regular question I ask God in my prayer life, laying out a situation or a problem or an issue and asking God, what do I do with this? I've grown to love doing this because it kind of takes the pressure off of me to figure out what the answer is and puts it on him. (laughs) I sense it honors God. Like when I ask this question, I really am not sure what the answer is. I'm not presuming to know what God should do. And I'm actually thinking, or at least starting to admit, that whatever it is that is necessary, he needs to do something that only he can do. And God seems to honor these kind of prayers. He seems to answer them. Does that make sense? So again, we ask the question, what do we do with this? What does this mean for our life today? Or more importantly, what should it mean for our life today? Our work, our school, our focus, our schedule, our retirement, our savings, our dreams. What about our fears? I mean, come on. Most of us are literally scared to death. We're scared of death and we're scared to death. And I put myself in this category at times too. The biggest reason I was praying on Friday is loss of control. I was bawling. My kids are out. I'm not in charge anymore. As if I ever really was. On one hand, we have the fear of dying too soon, right? leaving behind children and people that count on us because we all know that it's us taking care of our friends and our family and our children, not God, right? It's us. Or we have a fear of living too long, getting sick and rotting away in a nursing home or running out of money. Because again, it's our career and our investment prowess, not the God of the universe, 
These seem like ingrained fears. They seem pretty common. These are fears that humans have been struggling with since the world began. So what do we do with all this? In my life, it seems to ultimately come down to faith. Not not some kind of nebulous faith that things will somehow work out. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about specific Bible-based faith. Faith in a person. The only perfect person, Jesus. Faith in Jesus to do what he promised. So we beg Jesus to fill us with this kind of faith. We beg the Holy Spirit to invade our hearts and our minds to the point that these fears begin to fade away and it starts becoming clear what we're supposed to do. And we remain open-handed to the Holy Spirit using His people, the church, to help us along this path of life, whatever it takes. We cannot do it on our own. God always uses other people. We prayerfully and intentionally live Paul's words in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Then what happens? Well, verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want to continue to become more like Jesus. Without his help, that's not going to happen. Jesus was immortal, and he lived like he knew it. If we keep the words of Jesus, we too are immortal. God says so. That's the main point of our text. And as this sinks in, as it really sinks in, we live differently. And the world needs us to really believe this. If we, our parents, our children, whether they live in our homes and after they've gone, need us to believe this. Our families and our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, strangers, any enemies we might have, The billions of people around the world, they need us to really believe this. The world has no idea what to believe. They're lost. They are desperate for true hope. And one thing they do not need, I want to be clear. One thing they don't need is more cautious, scared Christians. They don't need more Christians who basically live like they live. Avoiding all the same troubles and the same risks like they avoid. And just as afraid of death as they are. As if this world is all there is. If we follow after Jesus and believe what he says here, if we really abide in him, our lives will become less and less about our anxieties and our fears and our worries. And more and more about eternity. Wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we go to school, whatever we do, we can give and go and serve and love in radical Christ-honoring ways. This sounds kind of weird probably coming from my mouth, but we can live a life of wild and crazy Christianity. That's what I want to do. 
And the world needs this from us because the world needs the gospel. This means that the world needs the courage of Christians who live knowing that they will never die. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, you're our King, you're our Savior, you're our life. Thank you for your living and active word. Thank you for coming to earth in human form, living a perfect life and dying in our place for our sins and offering us eternal salvation that literally makes us immortal. Use your word today to change us into people that live that way, like we know it. We live and love in radical and fearless ways. Help us to be passionate about what you're passionate about. Help us to abide in you. Continue to form us into a church and a people that love you more than anything else. Thank you for loving us first. In your name we pray. Amen.